Yeah, you could tell I ran sound at one point, right? That's all right. That's all right. Amen. You know what? I, I want to pray again. Father, we worship you. We praise you. You are almighty God. We thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit that you have promised to those who accept you. And Father, I ask this morning that only your words come from my mouth. None of my own. I pray, Father, that as you have prepared hearts, you also continue to prepare mine. In Jesus' name, amen. It's been a weird week for me. And it, partly because Alexa is gone. <laughs> for those of you who are married, you, you understand that. Man, I'll tell you what, I, we're coming up on uh, 29 years. We've, uh, November 19th will be 29 years of marriage. And it's actually been very little that we've been apart. Um, I mean, it's just been four days, so I know that's not like a long time. And no, not because she makes me food and stuff like that. It's actually late at night, because at night we spend our time together. At night, we, the thing we love to do is watch Fox News together, <laughs> right? <laughs> we'll, we'll watch different programs, Hannity or whatever, but it's just hard when she's gone. But that's not why it's been a tough week. That added to it. Lord knew that. But ever since Tuesday night, I've had a heavy heart. And my heart has been heavy because, not because of the message, but because he wants me to deliver it. <laughs> and there's a heaviness to that. As a matter of fact, I feel the same way I did when this whole process started. And we, for those of you who don't know, we've been a church for about two and a half years. And what happened with this was I have taught the word of God for 30 years. I've taught the word of God and, and all my upbringing, I got saved when I was nine years old, all my upbringing, I have learned the word of God, loved the word of God. But the thing is, there were things and truths that were taught to me just in the last few years that I had never understood before. And, and most of you know my testimony. I, I'm not a pastor. I wasn't a pastor. I, I wasn't called to be a pastor until I was 50 years old, right, just a few years ago, even though I'm still 35, just so that's clear. Yeah. But, uh, but basically, in the last few years, the Lord began to show me in his word that through a relationship with Jesus Christ, you can speak to him as we do in prayer, but you can also expect him to speak back. He speaks through his word, and I always knew that. As I said, I've taught the word for, for almost 30 years. He's always spoken to me through his word. But it wasn't just a knowledge 
of his word. It wasn't just understanding the nuances of his word and knowing the, the do's and don'ts of his word. Because it became something much more important. It became a relationship with him. See, in a relationship, and I've said it a thousand times, a relationship, a true relationship, you can expect communication both ways. And what he has done is opened my eyes to that communication. And you guys know over the last three years, that especially when the college group was with me at the beginning, they, they've been through this whole crazy thing with me. And then he started this church. And praise God, thank you, Lord. See, that was a paradigm shift for me that was really difficult. Because at the time, and the Lord made it very clear to me, I just said, Lord, you, you've, got to, you've got to show me this so clear in your word because I'm going to lose my friends over this. I'm going to lose my family over this. See, because I grew up a cessationist. I grew up somebody who did not believe that Jesus Christ speaks or the Holy Spirit speaks to his people. I grew up believing that. And so I knew, Lord, I'm going to lose my family over this. I knew even, even my wife, even whom I dearly love. I don't know if she's going to understand this. How, how's this going to be taken? And, and, and again, I don't mean to reiterate the whole story, but, but I do it for some background because you know how it turned out, right? Okay, you know that what the Lord has done in this church, what he has done through our lives. But I've come to another point in my walk with him that has been a paradigm shift. And this has actually been several weeks, almost a couple of months in the making. And I knew at some point it was going to rear its head and God was going to force me to talk about it. And that's what's given me a heavy heart. Not because of the word, not because of, of the message even, but because the church doesn't get it. That's the heavy heart. The church doesn't get it. You look at, for those of you who have been raised in Christian homes and, and have been part of, part of Christian church all your lives, you know what I'm talking about. I've been in leadership in, in churches for, for the greater part of the last 30 years. And so understand what I mean by the church doesn't get it. But what don't they get? They don't get this idea of warfare. They don't get this idea that it's not just about choosing Jesus Christ. It's not just about choosing what He wants for your life, building a relationship with Him. But it is actually also about standing up against what Jesus Christ stands up against. There is a real enemy out there. And the reason this has come up now is because it has happened. It is in your faces. And I apologize up front. Because when you hear this message, you then will become responsible for it. And that, that's a heavy thing. 
That's a heavy thing because it's so easy to go to church and feel good about a message and, and this, this great message and now I feel good, everything's going to go well and awesome going to my week. But I'm sorry, that's not the church. That's not the church. Jesus said he did not come here to make friends. Right? He came here literally to wage war. Now, to wage war with us? No. To wage war with the enemy who had waged war with him already. And that is Satan. And all those who follow him. That's the war that rages. That's the war that the American church doesn't understand. I'm so thankful for my eyes really that begun to get open. The first time I went to Mexico and then worked there for, for a few years. But then when I went to Nigeria and we've been there now, I've been there now for a year and a half. It just opened my eyes to to this different paradigm. See, the world isn't like the box that we have in America. Even the church is not like what we have in America. And I'm talking about in a bad way. See, because in America we are blinded. We are blinded by what really goes on. If you want to experience that truth, man, just come over to Nigeria with me. I'm going in two weeks or three, uh, two and a half weeks. I'll show you. Because see, the churches that is used to that warfare every day, because they are not bogged down by the comforts that we have here in the United States. Do you know comfort is what dulls our senses? Because we like to feel comfortable. We like to feel good, right? We like to feel like, like everything's okay. But see, in a time of warfare, that's a dangerous feeling to have. Because then you become blindsided by what the enemy is doing. So what I want to talk about today is this idea of how the enemy affects even Christians. I'm going to make a statement that's going to be hard for you to receive. It was hard for me to receive. Trust me. I've taught literally opposite of this my whole life. And stated literally opposite of this my whole life. But just as the gifts of the Spirit became evident to me of truth, this has become evident to me of truth. And I believe it will be for you today. Because it's time for your eyes to be opened. It's time for you to understand what Jesus Christ really can do in your life and what He really wants to do in readying His bride. See, He can't ready His bride through feel-good moments and us all feeling good about ourselves and good about each other. And that's part of it. But that's not how you prepare for battle, which is what Jesus said He came for. This battle that we're to take up, he already finished it on the cross. And his bride is supposed to carry it on and clean up, if you will. 
See, I am under the firm belief that the Christian church is confused, that they are not vulnerable to the enemy. That as a Christian, you are not vulnerable to the, well, he can oppress me. He can oppress me. I can put on my shield. He can oppress me. But he can't get any further than that. And I'm here to tell you that's incorrect. Please hear me carefully. A Christian can be possessed by the enemy. A Christian can be demonically possessed. And I know that's a hard word to hear. But I want to show it to you in Scripture. Because I believe this is one of the greatest deceptions that the enemy has portrayed, especially in America. See, you go over to other countries and, and you begin to realize it's different, as I've explained. In America, he has been able to deceive us to the point where we don't even realize there's a war going on. Now, I'm going to chalk it up to semantics, perhaps. But I think as, as we begin to get into this, I pray you'll understand. The definition of possession, and this is where we need to begin. Because I would think everybody here would agree with the fact that you could be oppressed. As a, even as a Christian, I could be oppressed. Satan can come against me and oppress me, right? Okay? Let's look at the definition of possession. What is possession? The act of having or taking into control or control or occupancy of property without regard to ownership. So the definition of possession is taking control of something that you do not own. I think we would all agree with that, right? That makes sense. If I'm going to go possess somebody's home, I go in there, I take over, and I possess it. doesn't mean I own it. It's an important distinction. That's why I say it could be a matter of semantics to you, but I want to take it a little further. And explain, why do I believe that a Christian can be possessed? It's simply because we do not understand what salvation, on a, on a large scale here, we do not understand what salvation really means. See, the Bible says that man, woman, we are made up of three parts. I want you to turn, as a matter of fact, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, says this, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, or sanctify means to be made holy, and may your whole spirit and soul and body, right? Your spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, we're made up of three things. We're made up of our spirit, 
which is eternal. We know it to be eternal. Our body, which we know is not eternal. Because when we accept Jesus Christ into our heart, one of the things that he promised us, praise God, is a glorified body. So all the junk's going to go away. All the good, good stuff comes in. I'm going to look better than I look now. Can you imagine that? Right, the college kids all know I'm joking. So, so our body gets changed, but so does our soul. What is our soul? See, she knows. She knows. She just, yeah, I love that girl. You go, Marley. So our soul, what is our soul? Our soul is our mind. Okay, the, mind, the, the Bible calls our soul, our, our mind, our soul. It's who we are. It's our will. It's the choices we make. It's the decisions we make. It's the thought processes that we have. That's our soul. And that is something that is to be renewed every day, Paul says. Right? He says, by the renewing of your mind. Right? We seek Him. We renew our mind every day. That's that sanctification. That's that be, being made holy. When we get saved, it is not through the act of salvation that our will or our mind, and certainly not our body, are made perfect. I mean, if you believe that, please introduce me to somebody that that's happened to. Because <laughs> that isn't the case. When we accept Jesus Christ into our heart, He sends the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, who seals our spirit. He seals our heart. Now, I'll be honest with you, I'm not sure exactly what that means, except that a seal, when a king places a stamp with his seal on it, that means it goes into law, it cannot be revoked, and it is done. That's the seal that he places on it. The thing we recognize, though, how many in here, after accepting Jesus Christ as Savior, have never sinned? (laughs) We need to talk. (laughs) Of course we sin. We sin all the time. We sin every day. We, even if we do not knowingly, actively sin, we live in a fallen body. We live in a body that we inherited all the way back to Adam who gave away his rights to Satan. So we have sin in our lives, even as Christians. We also... That's in our minds, but it's also in our bodies. You know, the Bible talks about how one of the worst things that you can do to your body is sleep with a prostitute. Forgive me for the children in the room. That's the worst thing you can do because you are becoming one flesh with something that is sin. It infiltrates your whole body. So understand that after we accept Jesus Christ... We are not sealed with our body. Perhaps that's why Jesus said, you're going to get a new one anyway. We're not sealed with our mind. Why? Because we can still choose to sin. 
we could still choose the wrong paths. So he doesn't come in and I accept you as my Savior and all of a sudden I become a puppet for him. If that were the case, first of all, it would be a lot easier for us if that were the case. But then he wouldn't get what he wants out of this. Jesus wanted relationship. Jesus wanted love. He wants us to love him. And that requires giving us a choice. That's why he gives us a choice for salvation in the first place. But that's also why he gives us the choice to live for him even after salvation. In reality, that salvation is broken down also into three things. What we call being saved, you know, that's the general term for accepting Jesus Christ into your heart, right? That is not fully what salvation is. That's really the justification part of salvation. And I know I've shared this with you before, but this is an important distinction to understand. So when we accept Jesus Christ into our heart, we are justified by our faith with His grace. With what He did on the cross. We are justified because of what He did on the cross. However, he says, now, I need you to live for me. Now, I want you to build this relationship with me. Learn how to let me work through you. Learn how to let me do things through your life. And that's a process. That's a process that we have to give to him and learn that communication, right? And that's something where I was a few years ago that that after all these years, I never understood that I, I can only grow my relationship with him to a point. If I don't allow myself to hear his voice, I can't go any further. Because a relationship requires communication. So then, as we're at this point, we have choices. But see, it's not just a choice to live for God after we've been justified. And by the way, when we're justified, when we accept Jesus Christ in our hearts, all of his promises apply. His promises of eternal life. That we are sealed by the Holy Spirit when? Until we receive what's promised, which is that eternal life. We're sealed for the rest of our lives. You cannot lose your salvation or your justification. You can't even give it away if you want to. If you accept Jesus Christ into your heart, you mean that, and you make him your savior, you will be in heaven. Period. But that is absent of the fact that he wants you to build a relationship with him. I have known hundreds and hundreds, probably even thousands of people that have accepted Jesus Christ into their heart and didn't take it any further. In fact, oftentimes go different ways, even after accepting him. Now, praise God, they don't lose that. But the relationship is what they do lose. The relationship is, is what is not built. Because that requires a choice. So back to 1 Thessalonians 5. I want you to notice something. 
It's a little word that we wouldn't normally recognize in there. 1 Thessalonians 5.23. The second half, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless. Be kept blameless. I want you to understand something. He had to say that and give that command and that directive because there's a possibility that it won't be. There's a possibility that it won't be kept blameless. He's not talking about you getting your golden ticket to heaven, which is what justification is. He's talking about that relationship. He's talking about building your relationship with him right here. It's to be kept blameless. Why? Because there's a cost to it if you don't. And there's a cost to it even as you do. Because in all the things that I've said, I've left out the other half. And the other half is there's an enemy that doesn't want you to do those things. There's an enemy that wants to, doesn't want you to be kept blameless. He may not be able to touch your justification. He may not be able to touch the fact that you will one day be in heaven. But he can touch you in the fact of making you a less testimony. Or drawing you away from the joy of relationship. Think about it. That's the one thing Jesus wants. Salvation, justification, that ticket to heaven is what we want. What does Jesus get out of it? To die? To go through the process of death on the cross, being raised from the dead, sitting on the right hand of the Father and waiting? I don't know about you, that would be a bum deal if it were for me. What he wants out of it is relationship. That's what he wants is relationship. So if Satan cannot do anything against him, which Jesus said, what he did on the cross was final, finished. Satan was defeated on the cross. So if Satan can't do anything about that, the one thing he can do is keep you from the very thing Jesus gets out of it. And that's relationship. So how does he do it? Well, the greatest tool that Satan uses is deception. He has many tools in his bag, but the greatest one he uses is deception. That's the very tool he used to bring about the fall in the first place. He started the process by deceiving Eve. So this this process of deceiving people is very powerful for him. And one of the greatest deceptions, I believe, is to get the American church to believe that he's not that powerful. You know, I think it's a mistake that the churches have made to say we will not talk about Satan because we will not give him the glory. We will not talk about what he does or warn about what he does because we will not give him the time of day. I'm here to tell you, church, it's a mistake. 
That's like walking into a war with your eyes closed and just hoping that you're going to hit something. Just hoping that you can do your job even though you cannot see what you're doing. Don't be deceived. So this idea of possession, and I want to talk about that first, but I don't want it to come across like, like this is his greatest thing, what he does. And, and that's where, to the Christian church, I would say, perhaps it's a matter of semantics, the difference between possession and oppression. But I've got one question for you. If you believe that Satan cannot demonically possess a Christian, then you have a problem. Because then you must believe that anyone, understand my words, anyone who is controlled by something that is not God, that there is no way they could be saved. And that's just flat incorrect. I've known many in my life. I had an uncle who is an alcoholic who could not break free of it. Why? Because he was controlled by it. Do you understand the control of that was not from God? And see, humans don't simply manufacture control on themselves. We are limited to choices. Now, praise God, he gave us choices because that's how we build relationship with him. But the choices are what we're limited to. See, understand this, what I'm saying. It's not, well, Satan did it or I did it. No, it's your choice. Understand, Satan set the ground rules. Satan set the playing field. Your choice was simply to yes or no. And this happens in the smallest ways. When I'm tempted to take something that isn't mine. Let's say I'm at the store and they give me back an extra ten bucks in change and it was a mistake on their part. And that's a real simple thing. All of us have done it. I've done it. The temptation is to take that, and then all of a sudden I'm walking away feeling bad, and, oh, I really should have said something. I really should have said something. What do you think that is? What do you think that is? Do you think that's your mind just telling you, well, maybe you should have made a different choice? No, see, you are owned, if you are saved, you are owned and bought with a price by Jesus Christ. The Bible says we become bond slaves of him, which is a slave by choice. So when, he does, when we do something that is not of the Spirit, the Spirit's going to let us know. That's what we call a conscience. That's what we call a conscience. So, so when we do that, we make choices. And right then and there, we make a choice. I'm going to listen to the Holy Spirit. I'm going to listen to my conscience and begin to allow him to sharpen that. Or... It can go the opposite way. I'm going to decide to say, no, I'd rather have the 10 bucks because I need the 10 bucks. So I'm, I'm just going to walk away. And that begins to dull. Why does it dull? 
because it gives authority. And it's an important thing to understand. You give authority to the enemy when you do that. It may seem like a small thing, but authority is built. Authority is built just like if you go to a job and you start at the bottom level of a job and you work your way up and, and all of a sudden, you know, you're a top level senior manager or senior vice president, right? Those steps were levels of authority that you stepped up. It's no different when we give authority to the enemy. Do you think a heroin addict starts out as a heroin addict the first time they try it? Of course not. Do you think a liar becomes a liar the first time they lie? No. No, when we sin, it compounds upon itself. When we make these choices without going to the Lord and asking forgiveness, when we listen to the Holy Spirit prick our heart and say, you should not have done that. Why? Because we're to be kept blameless. We're to be kept blameless. Now that isn't to say that when we sin, all is lost. Praise God, He allows us to go before Him and say, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me of my sin. Forgive me of what I've chosen to do. And you know what Jesus does? It's like an etch-a-sketch. It's all clean again. Okay, we'll start this thing again. The problem with that is... And, and, and don't look at hope like, well, I can always restart again. Because that is true. But the problem is that you start back. And all that you have gained has to be regained. See, keep a short account of your sin. And what Jesus says we become accountable for is known sin. When you know to do something and you don't do it, or if you know to not do something and you do it, that is known sin. That gives authority. It's like saying to the enemy that is tempting you, okay, we'll hang out a while. (laughs) If you knew what you were doing, you wouldn't. And and by the way, some of those authorities, the Bible teaches, even comes from other means. It it even comes through generations. I, I find it astounding. Hezekiah was one of them. But all throughout the Old Testament, when they would pray, they would pray for their ancestors. Right? Why in the world? Why why do you pray for somebody that's been dead for two, three, four hundred years? It's because of the authority. That was given back then. The Bible says it's passed on to three and four generations. In fact, there are certain sins passed down to ten generations, the Bible says. So when we ask forgiveness, that's why they did. The, the, the Jewish leaders asked forgiveness for their ancestors so they would not receive what is coming down through that bloodline. They kept a, a short account Let's get back to this idea, this idea of possession. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 gives a layout of this warfare. Chapter 6 verse 15 says this. 
And Paul's talking to Christians here, by the way, in the book of Romans. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? By the way, it's talking here about the difference of physical death. He is talking to Christians. He's talking to those who have accepted Jesus Christ as Savior, who believe in the Messiah and have accepted him. So them choosing sin then leads to death. But the opposite, when they choose to do what is right, when they choose to build this relationship and they choose obedience, it says it leads to righteousness. See, that's harmony with God. That's what God gets out of it. That relationship. That harmony. Oftentimes, we get knocked off course because of choices. And sometimes it's choices over something we want to do and we really want to do it. But more times than not, especially as you get older, it's choices made out of fear. It's choices that we make out of fear. Well, I I need this job. I know I'm going to have to work on Sunday. I know I'm going to have to work on Tuesday night, but I, I need this job. So it's a choice out of fear instead of trusting. The Lord knows what you need. He knows what we need. He knows what we need to choose. He knows what we need to do. And he said, Matthew 6.33, all you have to do is seek him in his kingdom, his righteousness. He'll do the rest. So he'll provide the job. Or he'll provide the time off. He'll provide what you need. But we make these choices out of fear. And when we make these choices, we write another little slip of authority, and we hand it over. Here, I'm, I'm giving the enemy authority over my life in this job. Why? Because I chose this job. It may seem like a small thing, but they begin to build and compound upon themselves. Like I said, a, a person who is a heroin addict did not start that way. A person who is addicted to pornography did not start that way. It started small. It started by noticing something, perhaps, and not turning away. Noticing something and not saying, Lord, forgive me for that. Take away any any effect that has on me. And What is Satan's lie? Oh, it's just a picture. Oh, it's just a thought. It's not going to, you're not killing anybody. You're not even doing anything. So it shouldn't matter. It shouldn't affect you. It shouldn't affect anybody. But what happens? You give that authority away. Now, by giving that authority away, Satan now has the right To come after you with it. It's like saying, yes, you're invited. 
Come after me. And that's what we do all the time, and we don't even realize that we do it. Now, I'm not saying those things are possession. I'm saying that those things can lead to possession. Because in my mind, possession, oppression, is a matter of semantics. But when you come to a point of control, where you are no longer in control, that's possession. And if you really allow yourself to think about that and not be deceived, you're going to recognize it all over. Because control is a very simple thing. It doesn't mean, here in, in the United States, we, we just have this myopic view of possession. You know, it's, it's, it's the whole exorcist spin the head around type thing. Right? If, you're, if, you're, if you are possessed, then, then it's all this crazy stuff happens. Now, by the way, that is possession. But that's not all possession is. Possession is control. I want you to turn to 2 Timothy. This is a, a pretty straightforward one. And, and hopefully will will help you to really see this and understand it. Okay, verse, let's start at verse 6. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of hands. Okay, and what he's talking about, Paul's talking about here, that, that he, when he had ordained Timothy, he had laid his hands on Timothy... And a gift was given to Timothy, a gift of the Spirit. Verse 7. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. See, when we get saved, God gives us the capability of self-control. He gives us the power to go and, and defeat the enemy in our life. And Paul's very specific here. Fear is a spirit. We've talked about that before. Fear is not something that just kind of hangs out in the atmosphere and you pluck it down and whatever. So often we play with fear. I remember as a young man, I, forgive me, Lord, and I've asked forgiveness, but I used to seek fear because it was a thrill. It was a thrill. If I could tell you stories of stuff that I did that my mother's sitting here, so I can't. <laughs> Just to feel that, that fear. And it was kind of a high for me. Just to feel that fear. Do you know by doing that, I was literally inviting the spirit of fear. What do you think that spirit is? That is a demonic spirit that you literally are inviting. That's why, uh, poor Brooke, uh, you, you, can, you can ask her about this, but there came a point in our lives where, where this idea of watching scary movies became very real to me. That what was being given away was this authority through watching those through the eye gates, through bringing, bringing it into your mind. But how often do we do that? How often do we do that? Because that's the thing to do. It's Halloween. 
we got to be scared. Do you realize you're giving authority to the enemy in doing that? So if fear is a spirit, and it's a spirit from the enemy, what do you say about possession when you know somebody who is controlled by fear? I would imagine if I asked, everybody in here would raise their hand and say, yes, I know somebody controlled by fear. But see, we don't think of that as possession because their head's not spinning around. But yet, it is possession because they're controlled. How many people make decisions based on that fear? Don't assume that demonic possession is is 100% or 0%. See, there are factors, and and if if you want to pursue this a little bit, Ephesians 6 will explain it to you, that we are in this warfare, but there are different levels of authority with the enemy. Right? Right? There are different levels of authority that the enemy, levels of power that the enemy has. So when you start giving this authority out in small levels, their whole goal is to get more and more authority in your life. So what? So they can control your life. How many of us know people or perhaps ourselves that are controlled by some other sort of addiction? It could be pornography. It could be that we're addicted to a substance. That's a little bit more easy to recognize. How about being addicted to fear, like I said? How about be, being addicted to, to, I don't know, you know what I'm talking about. Holy Spirit speaking to your hearts. See, addiction is control. And if you are not being controlled by the Father, there's only one other choice. So call it possession, call it oppression, call it whatever you want. It doesn't escape the fact of what it is. It's control by the enemy. And it's not just fear that he controls It's almost any of our emotions. How many times do we change what we want to do because we just want to be happy? Well, I'm going to eat this piece of chocolate cake because I'm just going to be happy. Now, by the way, I identify with that because I like chocolate cake. (laughs) Especially if it's German chocolate cake, okay, I could have a problem. All right, but the the point is, what happens when that becomes an addiction? When that becomes a control? See, the Bible says that anything outside of God's control is the enemy. So we give control every day to the enemy. And what I want to see is I want to see the church open their eyes to what's really going on. Because, see, this warfare can be won. We don't have to be afraid of this warfare. He who lives in me 
is greater than he who lives in the world. So we don't have to be afraid of that. By the way, I want to answer a question there. Because I was, I was reading through an article, and, it, and it's, it's, it's a website that I've used many times. It's a very conservative biblical website, and it's it, more, probably more, a little more in line of how I grew up than where I'm at now. This thing's bugging me. I need to get, like, tape around my head, and maybe it'll stay on. <laughs> but but this, this article, it's funny because I had somebody send it to me, but I, I had already been going through it and reading it. And it, it's the typical response to the fact that Christians cannot be demon-possessed, and so you don't need to worry about it. And one of the things that they say is, well, the Holy Spirit is inside of you, and the Holy Spirit would not let anything else inside of you. I don't know if that resonates with anybody here. Okay, that's certainly what I figured and what I thought, right, at a point. There's a problem with that. And one of the problems is the fact that if that were also the case, then he would not allow sin. Now again, please raise your hand, anybody who has not sinned since you've accepted Jesus Christ as Savior. (laughs) It doesn't happen. So what makes you think that the Holy Spirit would allow sin in there if he does not allow any other spirit in there. You have a problem. See, again, it goes back to the fact that, that if, if demonic possession for a Christian is impossible, then you've got to figure that 90% of the people that you know cannot be saved. And that's going to change your whole theology. It's just flat incorrect. See, the fact of the matter is, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. Why do you think it says two different times with the disciples that they were given the Holy Spirit? Right in John chapter 20, I believe it was, when, when Jesus, when Je- this was as Jesus came back, he raised from the dead, and he came back and saw his disciples for the first time. He blew into them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So what he was blowing into them was that sealing of Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. He was blowing into them that guarantee that they would receive eternal life. If that was all that they needed, he would never have sent his Holy Spirit to then fill them in Acts chapter 2 after Jesus had ascended into heaven. These are two different acts. So they already had the seal of the Holy Spirit on their lives, and then Acts chapter 2 came, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm in agreement with the fact that if the Holy Spirit is in your life, demonic presence cannot be. The problem is, so many Christians do not allow themselves to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Because it's not just a matter of saying, fill me with the Holy Spirit. See, there's a cost to it. It costs relationship. It costs the fact that you grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. And as He filters then the Holy Spirit in your life and fills you with the Holy Spirit, you begin to recognize 
the plans of the enemy. You begin to recognize where he's coming after you. I, I can tell you this is true because I've lived it. I've lived it. Where I didn't used to recognize how the, how the enemy might be coming after me. I recognize acutely now what he tries to do. I'm not saying I see everything. But I rely on my relationship with Jesus Christ to show me what I don't see. But see, he allows me to see it. Because I choose to go after him hard. When we accept Jesus Christ in our hearts, it's not over right there. It's just beginning. It's just beginning. He wants this relationship with us. And, and I know I've, I've gone on now. I actually was going to do a question and answer time at the end of this because I really thought I'd speak for about 15 minutes, but that didn't happen, right? I know. I, I don't know myself very well either. But I will say this. If you have questions about this, email me. Talk to me. I'll talk to any of you about it. Because your life needs to become a fortress. A fortress where you allow Jesus Christ to infiltrate each piece. You can't hold anything back. Because anything you hold back, that you take back, is effectively something you give to the enemy. And he will build a stronghold. You know, the Bible talks about strongholds. How the enemy builds these strongholds in us. It doesn't happen overnight. It happens through that first yes. And again, I'm sorry, but you guys now are responsible for this because you've heard it. But be joyous because it will also equip you. It will equip you so that God can use you to become the most devastating weapon that he has. And that's your heart, your, your mouth, your will. Like Thessalonians said, to be kept blameless. doesn't mean we don't sin. It means we don't give away authority. To be kept blameless. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we worship you and we praise you. And I thank you for your word. I thank you that in relationship with you, there is no attaining the top. There is no attaining the end of depth of relationship with you. You will always take us deeper if we seek you. You will always take us deeper if we go hard after you. I pray, Lord, that this message burns into the hearts of these people and those online. Because this is a message that the church needs to hear. We need to be aware, not only of the enemy and his strategies, as you've said in Ephesians 6, but we need to know to put on our armor. See, that can be a quaint little reference when we read it. If we don't feel that we're in a war, we don't feel we need to put it on. But God, we're automatically in a war. 
And that's why we desperately need to put it on every day. So, Father, I pray that you challenge us. Open our eyes. Do your work. And understand that those possessions are not and don't have to be permanent. Something that we're addicted to or something that we know someone that is controlled by. That could be broken and is being broken. And there is hope. Bring that to the forefront of your church, Father. That the enemy may, may have no place. No place. As you keep your heads bowed and eyes closed.